Welcome to an episode of the Defo Mohapi Show, hosted by myself, Defo Mohapi. Thank you for taking some time out to listen to this podcast. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world, their views on the state of the world currently, and what they think needs to be done to make our world better, or at minimum, how we can all get along better and do better. Make sure to head over to radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com. And subscribe to get notified on new episodes of this podcast and other iAfrican radio shows. I hope you find this episode insightful. There's a movie I watched earlier this year. It was released on Netflix. I think it's called The Laundromat. It was about the Panama Papers. Yes. But what struck me was a quote that stuck with me for a while. It went something like, uh, privacy and secrecy are two different things. Privacy is locking the bathroom door when you want to take a pee. Secrecy, on the other hand, is locking the door because what you're doing in the bathroom is not what people usually do. So, I mean, in, in your case, as far as the internet goes, would you agree with that? I ask this, maybe I need to qualify. I ask this because sometimes when I speak to people about privacy and its importance, they'll say, uh, why are you so worried about that? If you're not doing anything bad, you shouldn't be worried. Mm. You know, it's funny, that quote from, uh, from the laundromat actually stuck out for me as well, and I, I had forgotten it. But it, it's, you know, this is really something that one does here a lot is if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. And I feel that, you know, I feel that I hear that less often now. And I don't know if it's that I'm just choosing different kinds of friends or if uh, people's perspectives on that are starting to change. You know, the, the reality is that I don't know anyone who's ever said that who didn't, in fact, have something to hide. I mean, we've all got something to hide. And that's part of what makes us human. It doesn't mean that what we're hiding is something shameful or, uh, or illegal. But each of us has a part of ourselves that we keep hidden from, from the outside world, from strangers, and that is part of what makes us human. Each of us has something to hide. The reality is that, that people who say you have nothing to fear are often people who haven't really necessarily considered the consequences of what that part of themselves that is hidden, what happens if that is no longer protected. So for example, you would never hear, it, it, you know, it, it's much more common, for example, for men uh, if I may, to be more cavalier about their security than for women. Because yeah. in our society, men tend to just walk around feeling a bit safer, like the world is a less dangerous place. That's and true in South Africa. Yeah. yeah. You know, me, uh, people who are cishet or heterosexual might not know what it's like to have to live every part of your, you know, for every day in your life to feel like you have to keep a bit, a bit of yourself hidden because a basic part of your identity is actually putting you at risk. Isn't privacy also about self-determination as, as opposed to secrecy? Because, as you say, there are certain parts of yourself you'd want to keep away from the world or not not necessarily hide. I think hide is a, is a negative type word, mm -hmm. but keep to yourself that you, do, yeah. you wouldn't want the world to know. Absolutely. You know, I think you, you call it self-determination. That is really what's at stake is your personal information, the parts of your private life parts of you that are you, you should surely have the power to decide how much of the, you know, what happens to that information, who has it and who can use it. 
And when we talk about digital privacy, we're really talking about the fact that ordinary people have often been given very little control and very little say about what happens to those parts of themselves that are captured in, in digital form. You know, I might not, or, or people might not, for example, think that a few lines of data that would be, you know, logged in a, in a server by MTN represent who you are. But once you have five years of those logs, that actually represents a lot of who you are. And we have very little say in, you know, we often, those parts of ourselves, we don't know that they're being stored somewhere. We don't know that they're being passed off or stolen or sold. And uh, I think that's really, as you said, it's it's about autonomy and self-determination. It's about um, being in control of that part of your world. You summed it up perfectly. And when you mentioned uh, in like part of your data being stored by telecommunications companies like MTN, etc., it reminds me about, uh, I used to be a system administrator for one company many years back, where as a server administrator, if you can put it that way, of, of both DNS and email. And I would tell people, you know, that's where my privacy sort of consciousness started growing that you are not aware sort of the cloud or whatever you're using is sitting on someone else's computer and you are Mm. not aware of what those technicians are doing. You're not aware of what is happening in the background. So do take measures like using encryption for your email, PGP, Mm. et cetera. So I I think I want to bring it to South Africa now. I mean, currently, where do you think in terms of just general consciousness, having been in this industry and actively working in this industry as far as digital privacy goes, where do you think, I mean, what's, what's the progress been as far as citizens and people in general have gone, as you've observed, obviously not, not sort of 100% factually, but as you've observed? Mm. Well, actually, the, you know, the, it's interesting because the, the, the usual answer that we hear is that South Africans don't care about their privacy uh, or mm-hmm. else you hear people who might say, well, you know, in, in a country with major social problems in, the, in a country where unfortunately many people are uh, living in poverty or worrying about how much food there's going to be at home at the end of the week, things like digital privacy are less of a concern. I'm not convinced by that. And it's true that we all have a a hierarchy of needs and very basic things like bread and butter issues are always going to come first. But if you look at, there's actually a very interesting survey that is done every year by Ipsos and a Canadian research institute. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's CIGI. They do these these things called the annual, like annual online perceptions survey or something like that. It looks at 24 countries and South Africa is one of the, one of the South Africa, uh, one of the African countries. And it's it's conducted it's conducted yeah. online? It's not. So I'm not exactly sure how Ipsos conducts it. You know, Ipsos has, is doing all the survey work. And so they, uh, so yes, they, yes, uh, yes. they, they weight it for, and, and in different ways just to make sure that it is statistically representative. So yeah. it would be very stupid if, for example, they were getting people's perceptions, but only getting people who happen to be, you know, um, are very well yeah. networked using iPhones or whatever. But what was very yeah, interesting what... is that it, 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 it shows, for example, it asks people, how worried are you about your online privacy? Are you worried about your online privacy now more than you were worried a year ago? To what extent do you worry about government surveillance, about data collection from private companies? You know, those sorts of questions. And what was, I think, fascinating is that South Africa actually scored one of the highest sort of rankings in terms of privacy consciousness, you know, on on the surveys. And what I think is interesting happening, you know, it it could be a a couple of different things. It could be, for example, South Africans responding to more information coming out about how state surveillance in particular was really there was more evidence of its abuse in the final parts of the Zoom administration. And maybe that means South Africans are bumping up. Maybe it's actually about South Africans saying that they are less satisfied with the kind of legitimacy of the state 
And so they just generally are aggrieved and they're more likely to say they don't trust government agencies or things like that. And when it comes to the private sector, maybe it's things, people actually being pissed off at MTN and Vodacom and whatever about the cost of data. And that's why they're actually distrustful of those. The distrust, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but not, so, so these, these statistics, you know, uh, are not detailed enough to answer these kinds of questions. But it is interesting to me to think that actually South, you know, South Africa is, is bucking a trend there. Um, and one of the factors that I often think about is that as much as an ordinary South African might say, well, you know, I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm not a whistleblower. I don't really worry about state security listening to my phone call. But one of the things that almost every South African or person in South Africa has experienced is having is identity theft, having someone yes. trying to open up an account in your name because they've got your ID document or your you know, proof of residence and things like that. And it's, you know, there's very, very high rates of identity theft in South Africa. And those are really, the identity theft industry, obviously, is built on on data theft. Abusing privacy. Yeah, abusing privacy. And I wonder if that is part of what makes, you know, the the unique unique angle in South Africa to understanding how South Africans might engage with privacy, which is different from how uh, they might engage with it in Europe or in North America, where... A lot of these debates, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the voices from those places really dominate these debates globally. And there might yeah, be some local nuance there. Yeah. And I think that's a very good point. And I like that you brought up identity theft as a sort of an angle for South Africans into understanding privacy. As you're mm. aware, I mean, in 2017, working with Troy Hunt, we uncovered this mm. huge database, which effectively is equal to like all the citizens of South Africa's data being leaked online one way or the other. But what's been very frustrating when you talk about South Africans being aware of privacy and and talking about identity theft, what's been very frustrating is how the various agencies of government or the various parts of government have actually done nothing about cases where like in this case where data leak has happened due to negligence of some sort and no action is taken, no future preventative measures are put in place, despite us having uh, something like the Protection of Personal Information Act. I mean, mm. what, 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 how do we, I mean, we've got this act, we've got the information regulator. How do we go about now enforcing this and ensuring that, because if I'm not wrong and you can correct me, one of the key parts of the Protection of Personal Information Act is separating the duties of, well, firstly, an organization can only collect, uh, if I'm not wrong, information that it's going to use in its uh, in its operations from a person. And I think the second part was about uh, separating sort of the, the role of storage and, and collection and etc. I mean, mm-hmm. how, how do we enforce? Because and, and on paper, that's to, to for me as a lay person and also working in the industry, that's that's a good law. But how do we enforce it? I mean, it's been several years now. Firstly, just in case people missed out on it, I feel like I need to brag on your behalf. Am I correct? I African actually, they, you broke that story. We did. The, yeah. It was, and that was one of the first pieces I remember seeing. Oh, hang on. This is. You know, that, that's I guess how you came on my radar because I'm I'm, I'm I wasn't usually a kind of tech news a consumer. Yeah. But I sh- everything you've said resonates with me so deeply, which is this deep sense of frustration of data leaks that happen, you know, and, and, and that was the biggest, that was October 2017, if I remember. But That's right. But we've seen so many come since then. And always the conversation is the same is who is going to act to protect us? Why hasn't there been action on these things in the past? What action is going to be taken in the future to try to remedy all of this? And, and we have the same deeply frustrating 
sense that there isn't any any movement. And so you mentioned the Protection of Personal Information Act, which is, you know, kind of our data protection law. And my understanding of the situation, and this is incredibly, it gets quite dull and technical. Um, but my understanding is that the data protection law, Poppy, was signed in 2013. That's but right. It's, but it's you, most of its provisions are essentially suspended. It's not. Its it, provisions are not yet in force, except for the first phase, which is that a regulator will be set up, the watchdog called the information regulator, which I often describe it as the kind of public protector of privacy. Data. Yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, and which is not which is a simplification, but I think on these matters, part of the problem is that these matters are talked about at such a technical level that it leaves so many people behind and. Essentially, we have a situation now where we've got a regulator, we've got a law that's in paper, but the whole, but the full provisions of the law, which will provide uh, the the kind of protect the legal protections for our personal information, are not yet in force, and they will not be in force until the basically until the regulator is up and running and is capable of fulfilling its mandate, and then the president will essentially declare the rest of the law in force. And if I recall, it's been 2016 since the heads of the regulator were appointed. Of course, uh, one of them is uh, advocate Pansit Lakula, who was previously with Lakula, IEC. yeah. Yeah. And um, that was 2016. We're three 16. years later, and we're no closer to, to having the legal protections in place. And there's no clear timeline by which, by when that will happen, you know, and, and it feels like every year we're told, oh, it's, you know, it'll be something that happens sometime midway of next year. And the year passes and the same, the answer is the same. And it's been very difficult and frustrating to find out what those delays are about. We know that, it, you know, one point it was about finding the budget for the regulator and, and, and agreeing to it. And the other, you know, now there's appointments going on. The reality is that South Africans or excuse me, the people of South Africa, because not everyone needs to be a citizen, uh, are left without protection for their privacy, the legal protection that's promised for them. And what's essentially happening is a service delivery failure. And what's happening in the meantime is that the private sector is setting its own rules and playing by those rules, and there's no one really to protect us. So as an example of, of the frustration you were talking about, this yeah. very week, as you know, uh, there was a, a report of over a million mobile users browsing data being leaked online. That's um, right, yeah. And it's it's amazing to me that that story has come and gone and th there's, you know, it's almost disappeared without a trace. And that was information that evidently was being collected by a service provider to one of the big telecoms networks. It's not clear why they had collected that data, why they'd stored it. It's really left up to a handful of journalists and their readers to try to piece together a picture of what happened, who should be held accountable. And the, and the best hope we have for accountability at this point is tagging the companies on Twitter uh, and hoping which is that they not, people's questions. Yeah. Which is not good enough. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think it, it it is very frustrating um, to be in a situation where we're still waiting for... for this law to come in place, I've sometimes thought one of the reasons that these delays have been really allowed to happen and that there's been very little political cost for failing to implement the act is because we've discussed it in such a technical way. It's something that's really, it, even though the law and the issue applies to every single person, if, you know, one way or another, it's really 
being it, it, it's such a technical thing and it's being discussed in such a technical way that people are not necessarily connecting it to the problems that they're having with identity theft, with uh, companies or government or government agencies collecting your information, saying you could only enter this building if you bring your ID book, you must yep. scan your face if you want to enter. Or even your fingerprint. Or your fingerprint, all this other stuff. And not realizing that there is meant to be a watchdog in place and that watchdog hasn't yet arrived. You know, one of the things I did or I was involved with when we were, uh, when I was with Right to Know uh, on the staff was a group of people worked to create almost like a plain language advisory of uh, what poppy means for you. Like essentially just trying to spell everyday out. Everyday people, yeah. Yeah, everyday people. I think it was, uh, if I remember the, uh, the because I've got a short, short code for it, it was r2k.org.za forward slash protect my privacy. And it really okay. spelled it out in, in, I thought, quite plain language of saying, these are really the five things that would happen if this law was in place. These are the four or five reasons why it isn't in place yet. And here's a single step you can do to try to, you know, create some pressure for the process to be speeded up, translated into a couple of languages. But it was one of those things. I, I just mentioned that now because for people who might be listening to this to be like, okay, what is in Poppy? That's a place you can go just to get a first kind of working knowledge of it. Yeah. And, we, and we really okay. need to deepen uh, this conversation. And I mean, you mentioned something that... Uh in the absence of the regulator acting and all and the poppy act being enforced we left with a private sector that literally left to run loose and even though they say they're creating their own laws uh, it's literally it, it it means nothing because it's not compliance with the act and one example there's a companies called data aggregators i think you mm. mentioned people you, you know like when you enter buildings you ask for an id so these data mm. aggregators it's not data aggregators but in south africa basically take information like from home affairs from credit bureaus from your building some of it mm. from social media everywhere and they put like in one database like the one we had with the mm. master deeds and they link all your information is there and if i understand poppy correctly from my layman's perspective a company shouldn't be able to do that yeah i mean you're absolutely right and, and you know one as you said the, the you know they, they can only collect information for a specific purpose it can only be used for that purpose and except in very, very limited circumstances, it cannot be collected at all without your consent. And yes. so, for example, selling that information on to someone else would no longer... Which is what be, they do, which yeah, is their yeah, business exactly. model. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, I, I sometimes think that the, 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 the you know, I'm, and speaking as someone who spent a good deal of time focusing specifically on state surveillance and, and the abuses there, and there's reasons for that, but probably the single biggest surveillance sector in south africa is the, is the, is the credit is the credit sector um, it is yeah and it's it's, it's it, you know and, and we're, since we're talking about the need for a regulator to be there and to be you know to have teeth one of the kind of bits of perspective that i got from some colleagues who work at privacy international you know as in, kind of looking at the international perspectives because i spelled out the frustration we had to say we've got this law that exists only on paper we've got a regulator that doesn't yet have any enforceable powers and doesn't seem to have any urgency. And they basically said, kind of, welcome to the club. That across the world, there seems to be trends where, where, where it's left to citizens really to push hard, firstly, for there to be a law in place. Once there's a law in place, they have to push hard for the regulators, you know, for the law to be implemented. 
once that's happened, they have to push hard to to try to get the regulator to take a kind of a you know really to tackle these private private companies that will come with an army of lawyers. And I think that the, the those data aggregators and and private private firms that are operating really on the on the legal margin and uh, and have no interest in proactively disclosing what they're doing and proactively accounting for what they're doing. It's going to be a, a it's going to require quite a lot to rein those entities in. Because it'll be threatening their revenues and, and yeah. business models. It's essentially, when, when Poppy becomes fully in effect, they'll have to, I think, shut down because they can't collect that data unless they, they, they collected it directly from us. Or, I mean, the, the, unfortunately, the, although it's, it's, not, it's not a very optimistic look, unfortunately, the, the alternative possibility is that they will not shut down that they will try to essentially write, you know, because the, 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 the act is still quite broad and it requires quite a lot of interpretation. And it will be up to the information regulator and the staff there to provide, for example, detailed policy guidelines that might apply to different sectors. So, for example, the collection of information or access control, so scanning thumbs, yes. or license plates or whatever as you enter a building or a parking lot, or for you know security cameras or for any of these things. It will come down to the information regulator to draft more detailed guidelines on this and to make findings and to establish precedents. And I'm very worried that you're going to have a situation where you've got a, a weak and under-resourced regulator whose rules are being written for it by industry by the private so, sector True. yeah and so yeah. the price so, so so which is more likely is the is the unknown uh, let's say billion rand industry of data aggregators are they going to shut it down or they're going to divert a very small amount of that revenue towards hiring 20 lawyers who are going to start kind of trying to guide the regulators processes from you know uh from the sidelines i think that you know that that, that kind of regulatory capture we've seen it elsewhere i'm sure that it's an issue in things like the financial services sector and banking regulating uh, regulations, and, and I imagine it's going to be a problem we start to encounter here. And or they could also uh, morph into service providers to to, to financial services companies, mm. etc., mm. because of the the information and type of surveillance operations they've put in place. Now moving to to state surveillance. I mean, uh, you were involved in this case with uh, South African State Security, and what was interesting is that. By, unlike private sector companies, am I correct in assuming that generally speaking, before we touch on the specifics of the case, generally speaking, the state is allowed to sort of be a custodian of citizens' data? That is an interesting Or question. is it only specific types of data, specific types of cases? Uh, are we talking here about specifically not in line the, with Poppy? Not, not specifically in yeah. line with Poppy. Okay, so, so my understanding with Poppy is that it applies to state agencies, it applies to the private sector, it applies to essentially anyone who's collecting and processing information. It would apply to civil society organizations, to news organizations. But there, there is an exemption to all of those rules in Poppy, which says that, you know, all of those rules we said, um, what they, I think they call the, the eight conditions for, for processing information, is that... It doesn't apply if it's being used by the government for legitimate policing or national security purposes. But there's there's a fine print to the fine print. That exception or exemption is only true if there is another law in place that regulates the processing of that information and that that uh, law sufficiently protects your privacy. So that, you know, there's a there's a few loopholes within those that loophole. But what it's basically saying is, Poppy doesn't apply if it's the state using your information for national security or policing purposes. But there has to be another law in place 
and that law needs to have sufficient privacy protection. So if you've got a situation like RICA, the, you know, which, uh, uh, which is our communications surveillance law, yes. where in fact a, a court has said that there aren't sufficient privacy protections in place until those protections are in place, um, it's invalid. Yeah, yeah. And so, the, you know, the challenge we have is already we've seen a few situations where even the chair of the information regulator, Advocate Tlakulo, said, oh, well, you know, Pompey, our mandate doesn't extend to kind of state security agencies. And we have to say, no, 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 hang on. It does. Actually, it does. Yeah, it does. You just need to make sure that, you know, and so, so, and there's actually, there's a number of kinds of surveillance that our agencies use that are not regulated by any law. And uh, so what we would have to say is actually <laughs> our data protection law actually applies to them. Yeah, but yeah, so that is all to say that there is not a carte blanche when it comes to how government agencies use our private information. And unfortunately, we have a situation where many people, including the agencies, kind of act like, you know, like the rules still don't apply to them. Which brings me to the case of the state security agency and which applies to, and that's why I asked that question first, that. Does mm. is the government a custodian of of citizen data and can they do as they please with it? Where I think you guys, are, along with others, I think it was Amabungani and Privacy International, you were arguing that there aren't enough provisions or the the state is not allowed to illegally tap people's uh, uh, what's this telecommunications or phone lines. Yeah, yeah. But you yeah. eventually, from what I read from the case documents, you eventually uncovered that there was a sort of uh, non-discriminate uh, surveillance could you just like give us a background on that for some people who haven't heard about yeah. that yeah. and what specifically was being tapped or was being surveilled so the you know the just to give the full background the case uh, is was was brought by Amabungani Center for Investigative Journalism um, when they discovered that one of their journalists Sam Sol had had his phone line monitored by by state security or its, or its predecessor uh, for about 6 months uh, his phone line was being listened into by state agents while he was having confidential discussions with sources, whatever he was saying over the phone to his loved ones. And they were, it, it, you know, there's a lot of twists of how they were able to pull together the kind of evidence that that had happened. But eventually, essentially, it became a matter of public record that the state had been listening in on his phone call. And so they, they, they looked specifically at how the RICA law had either enabled that spying to happen or in some instances had failed to prevent that kind of spying. And they had, I think, they, they, they kind of pulled out six key weaknesses in the law that were sort of part of their, um, uh, part of their legal challenge. And just to explain how I was involved in it is that I was in working with Right to Know, the Right to Know campaign as a friend of the court. Yeah. And Privacy International had joined us as a friend of the court, kind of giving international um, perspectives on how these things are dealt with in other jurisdictions. The key kind of weaknesses and critiques of the RICA law, number one, that it has historically lacked uh, transparency. And what that means is essentially when you're, phone has been intercepted or your your communications data has been intercepted or internet traffic or any of those things you as the target would never be notified of that and but doesn't that defeat yeah. like from a, i'm going to ask from a layman's person yeah one would think that defeats the purpose of you being sort of spied on because the state suspects you doing something and, and, and that i mean i think that's a very reasonable first response and it was obviously one that was argued quite quite insistently by the state. But what the, the, the suggestion was never that you would get notified at the time to say, hey, we're going to be listening in on your phone call for the next six months. 
but what would happen and this is and we were able to show that this this existed in many of the international equivalents of RICA is that after the interception is complete and after the investigation of you is complete you would get a notification to say by the way during the period of this month to this month in 2017 we were intercepting your communication uh, i and, see so it's post post it's uh, post, post fact, investigation yeah. and and yes. and so if, let me give you an example if if the police were to get a warrant to go through your like you know the documents in your office they, that matter would be it would be known to you that they had searched through those uh, searched through those documents right you know the lock would be broken after be, they've done they, yes that makes us after yeah. they've done it not before yeah. they come to me yeah and and so and so they, they call that user notification is that post, after the fact you get notified and you know there, there was they, they had a number of concerns around the sort of in the, the, the kind of the process that is followed in order to intercept someone's communication. So under RICO, what happens is communication can only be intercepted if you're suspected of very serious offenses like uh, violent offenses, gangsterism, organized crime, terrorism, those sorts of things. And what happens is there's a specially designated judge, which I would call the RICO judge, and either the police or state security would have to go to that judge with an affidavit saying, we're investigating this person for these offenses. We'd like to intercept their communications. And the judge gives authorization either for there to be real-time interception of your calls or messages as they come or to get historical yep. records of the phone, you know, the kind of the logs of the calls you made or messages exchanged and that sort of thing, which doesn't include the content of the messages. Okay, that's what I wanted to get clear. Is it the metadata or is it the actual yeah. audio conversations? Uh, so, so, so it can be real-time content of messages or audio data, or it can be the historical metadata, or it can okay. be the real-time metadata. Um, okay, so real-time meaning it's actively being, uh, what's this, actively being um, monitored as you call it. Exactly right, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, sorry, so, uh, uh, there's a lot of moving parts to this, so I'm sorry if it's a bit messy. Um, no problem. But, but essentially what, what Amu Bangani argued to the court successfully ultimately was that there wasn't enough oversight built into that system. So the RICA judge was kind of didn't have enough independence, didn't have enough information. Uh, imagine going to kind of it, it, it's like going to court in which one party is not represented. And, you know, what they had said is that they wanted someone in that process, obviously not the person who's the target of interception, but what they call a public advocate. So it would be someone who'd almost be a state appointed uh, representative of your interests to say, uh, you know, to, to shore up your case. And yeah. so they were trying to really boost the transparency and the oversight built into that part of the system. And, you know, they, they, they raised a number of other concerns. What, one of the things is that in terms of RICA, your metadata is, you know, your uh, ISPs and your telcos are required by law to store your metadata for a minimum of three years. And they had raised concerns to say that, you know, that is a very three to five years, I think, is the window. And that's a very long time to store essentially a full digital record of, of all of your almost digital interactions and comings and goings. And that is, you know, all of us are subject to that kind of, of, of storage. So... In my case, I guess, you know, MTN has, has the five-year record on. They, they can tell you which neighborhood I was sleeping in on this date five years ago, which is quite a, you know, it's quite a detailed picture of who I am. Yeah. And so, so that, that was one of the concerns that, that, that Amo Bugani raised as well. 
And then cutting ahead, uh, the final thing that they were able to show is that th there is a body of evidence that suggests, as you were saying, that while all of the things I just discussed related to targeted surveillance, which is when you know the state has a particular suspect and follow steps to intercept their communications directly, what we see is that the state has also been conducting what they call bulk interception or mass surveillance which is um, any kind of program where the state doesn't have a particular target or person in mind who's under suspicion of, a, of an offense, but is actually collecting all available signals that it can and analyzing them later to see whether there's anyone in there who, you know, is suspicious or they analyze it for trends or whatever. And but that can be abused. I mean, am I, am I reasonable to say that? Yes, well, I mean, such surveillance can be abused. You know, and, and in fact, in, in the South African case, like in many, it, it has been. So this is not, you know, all of that mass surveillance that we're aware of takes place through a facility uh, housed by the SSA called the National Communication Center, the NCC. Still and, existing? Uh, it's still existing, although there's an interesting part of that which we'll come back to. But as far back as the mid-2000s, the NCC was the subject of, um, of a major intelligence kind of spying scandal, which we sort of remember as the hoax email scandal. But essentially, it was a, a situation where in the lead up to the kind of political rivalries between Mbeki and, and Jacob Zuma, Zuma yeah. uh, you know, parts of the intelligence agencies were spying on different people who perceived to be rivals. And uh, I, I think if I recall, during that time, they were also like, uh, sorry to jump in. There was also, I think, a rumor about faked emails or emails yeah, yeah. as part emails, of that whole yeah, exactly. spy operation. Yeah. Yes. And so one of the things is that one of the spy operations had doctored some emails to show that there was a plot. Yes. But in any case, it all came out in a, in a series of investigations. The, the Inspector General of Intelligence, which is our kind of spy watchdog, did an investigation. Uh, the, the Minister of uh, Intelligence at the time, Ronnie Castle, was appointed a, a kind of ministerial commission of inquiry called the Matthews Commission. One of the things they found is that the NCC, even back then, had been involved, it, it, it was involved in mass surveillance, and those mass surveillance powers were being used to target perceived political rivals. And, and there's no judge signing off on those things, there's no warrant. We don't know what the full technological, kind of technical capabilities of that facility are, but we know that the, yeah. their mandate is to collect what can be collected and to analyze it for uh, unknown purposes. And actually in the Amobungani case, because Amobungani put forward the, the evidence that they had, which had been kind of compiled through a combination of those state investigations from the 2000s and, and investigative journalism and research, they said, this stuff is happening, it's not currently regulated by any law. And this is one of the threats to people's privacy that journalists are, are faced with. And in fact, the head of the state security at the time that the court case was playing out was Arthur Frazier. He came back to try to reassure the court that actually this facility, its, its activities were not at all of concern and gave quite a lot of information that suggested that the NCC was actually collecting uh, unknown amounts of uh, signals from, from undersea internet cables that it was being used for all kinds of purposes. To, I think one of the purposes he said is for, for human security and food security purposes, we analyze trends. And I just think, man, so, so the state security... That's agency, very what, broad. 
Yeah, what, what kind of food security information is it getting from those undersea cables? Just an email from <laughs> yeah. one to another to say, hey, Maze is uh, looking pretty good in Zambia at the moment. And like, all right. Anyway, look, that, that, was, that was a lot of detail, but all to say that in September, as you were mentioning, the court, the high court came back and essentially found that Amo Bangani was correct in almost every, every part of its argument. And the outcome of it is that this will all be pending a constitutional court review in early 2020, but that from now on, if the state intercepts someone's communication, they will be obliged 90 days after the fact to notify that person. And if there's, if that person is still under investigation, or if there's another reason why notifying that person would actually compromise an ongoing investigation, they have to go to the judge to get permission to postpone the notification. And the, the reason that that's important is that we have, you know, I sort of right to know last year released a report on the surveillance, particularly of journalists, and has previously done one on unionists and activists. And one of the trends we picked up is that the lack of that notification, the lack of that transparency has allowed individual operators within the intelligence agencies, both police and state security, to intercept loads of people's communications and because none of us ever find out that our phone has been tapped or our email, email has been tapped or whatever, we can never bring the kind of case that Amo Mungani brought. And that, has re- that lack of notification and lack of transparency has really enabled these kinds of spying abuses. So yes. pending a confirmation from the Constitutional Court, that, would, that loophole was going to close. And the other, the other really far-reaching part of that judgment, which I think is very significant, is that it said that going forward, those, that, that mass surveillance program that I mentioned here, until there is a law that regulates it, it is unlawful and it needs to stop. And there are really unanswered questions about whether state security is going to be prepared to to uh, comply with that, or maybe just find yeah. some kind of loophole that allows them to continue, continue. And is there anybody technically monitoring that they do stop? That is now, we were talking about the difficulties we have with regulators. There is a regulator. Yeah. In, well, there, there are several kinds of oversight that that should exist on the intelligence agency. The one is obviously the RICA judge, but the RICA judge doesn't really have a mandate to look at these things or, or isn't enabled. The, the major watchdog here will be the Inspector General of Intelligence, which is kind of like a public protector of the spies, if you will. And yeah. it's difficult to say now without having the information that one would require to make this judgment, that there have been real concerns over the years that 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 agency has really lacked, the watchdog of the Inspector General of Intelligence has really lacked the independence it needs to do its job. That, you know, as of two years back, we have a new, a, a new Inspector General, this gentleman, Dr. Dintwe, Isaac Dintwe, who, you know, was at loggerheads with, with state security when he came in because he was taking on Arthur Fraser. But, you know, and, and so he has made kind of signals that he wants more independence for his office. But at the same time, we still, it's a situation where we don't have a watchdog that is really kind of very well resourced and kind of strong independent, uh, sort of strong powers of independence and has, has, you know, really been willing to kick the hornet's nest. And so you would want a, a regulator like that or a watchdog like that to go in and to inspect whether or not they've stopped those, those activities. But the, the signs haven't been great. And then, of course, Parliament itself has an intelligence committee, which is also supposed to hold the minister and all of those agencies to account. 
And one of the really damning things that came out this year is that, you know, the president appointed an inquiry into state security relating to a range of abuses. And it actually, this has been a long year, but it's almost easy to forget that, that in, in March of this year, he released this report um, of an inquiry into state security that found that criminality and abuses were, were pretty far reaching in our, in our spy agencies. One of the findings of that was that Parliament's Intelligence Committee was simply not able, you know, it was one of the bodies that this inquiry was supposed to engage with. And they found that the, the MPs who were meant to be overseeing the spies uh, just weren't able to, they, they, just, they didn't have any kind of ability to have a discussion about oversight because they were all new to the job and they, they weren't in touch with the issues. It, it's really part of a longer story, which is that, that Parliament has really given uh, um, a lot of leeway to our national security agencies to, to run the show for themselves and to kind of make the rules up as they go. And I would be very worried that it will it will be difficult for us to find out whether or not state security complies with any part of this of this court order. I was just thinking as you're talking about it and previously that I mean such a nondiscriminate mass surveillance also can mean that they can sort of retrospectively pin a case on someone based on information that might look like it's guilty, but because it's sort of framed in a certain way because they just non-discriminately collect data puts puts a bad light on a person is that something that like is part of why they shouldn't i'll tell you that's actually it's you know it's something that we've seen in other in other parts of the world and i think before we hear this and say well this means you know this is part of this is a uniquely south african problem these in many of these abuses have real echoes to what you will see in, in, in the national security agencies in the US or the UK, where actually the, those agencies are much bigger, much more powerful, and, the, and therefore the abuses are much bigger as well. One of the things we've seen in the US, for example, is that the FBI loans surveillance equipment to local police departments and allows them to use it to spy on, on people for whatever offenses, as long as they use it essentially to gather evidence that they can then find in some other way. So as you said, it allows them to, you know, so, so for example, they might tap your phone illegally to find out what you're up yeah. to and then find some other way to pin it on you and never tell a court, exactly, and never tell a court yeah. that they, um, the thing that you're saying, we, we've definitely seen that trend elsewhere. But I did hear something interesting in a little while ago, um, talking to, to someone who has worked in law enforcement and I was putting my concerns to him about how, on one hand, people who are cops don't want more rules and regulations that make it harder for them to actually do their legitimate job. But at the same time, these lacks, the lack of rules and regulations and oversight has made it very easy for these powers to be abused. And he was actually saying to me, no, 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 we need more red tape. On this, we need more red tape. And he was, he's not someone who I would consider a, uh, a soft-hearted, uh, bleeding, you know, bleeding-hearted constitutionalist. He was saying, yeah. no, we need more red tape around our surveillance powers because people don't use these powers, his own colleagues supposedly that, you know, or people in state security don't necessarily use these powers to investigate. They use it to strategize. So for example, if you were part of a faction within state security that might be kind of running some slightly corrupt practices and you're worried that you're under investigation, you tap the phones illegally of the people who might be investigating you so you can stay kind of one step ahead of them. And, yeah. and, 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 and unfortunately, that is, I mean, that is, one of the, that, that is one of the trends that we've kind of observed is that, that these powers of surveillance have actually played a really important role in the, you know, if you, if you want to call it the, the state capture project. 
which is that whilst there were sort of factions in the state and in private enterprise that were kind of chowing the money, their allies within law enforcement and within the intelligence agencies were using those they're using their powers there to try to stay ahead of the game and to try to root out rivals and also to root out whistleblowers. And so that's one reason why, for example, investigative journalists have been really targeted for spying and surveillance is because someone is trying to figure out who's giving them information, you know, with like who's the person with who's employed by the state, who's leaking damaging information to whether it's the Mail and Guardian or, you know, News 24 or whatever. Let's find the source. We often think yeah. of privacy just in terms of its, you know, we spoke about it before, in terms of, of self-determination and protecting That's right. yeah. your personal information. But there are many situations where privacy is about other things as well. So, for example, when the privacy of investigative journalists is at stake, the fact that journalists might get spied on is actually a freedom of expression issue because journalists who fear surveillance um, are less likely to kind of make bold decisions that, you know, there's a kind of almost like it has a chilling effect on freedom of expression and on, on the kind yeah. of critical reporting they might do. It also they're means self-censor, they're self-censored, there you go. And it also means that potential sources or whistleblowers are more afraid to reach out or to speak openly. And when they do reach out to journalists, they may uh, find themselves being punished or removed from their jobs. And so it means that actually the surveillance of journalists can be seen as actually being an attack on the public's right to get that kind of information because it closes down the flow of information. Now, I mean, we've covered this in terms of privacy for individuals, data leaks and state surveillance. Now comes the part where people might ask, what do I do now as a, as a South African or as a person in South Africa? What do I do to protect my data? Because as we're sitting here, the, the laws are not being enforced. The state is dodgy in terms of how it collects and uses people's data. So how do I as an individual go about protecting myself reasonably without being sort of going out of my way to learn technical things? Sure. So I mean, I think that it's always useful to look at your individual kind of habits and behavior and tactics. So making individual choices about securing your personal data and securing your personal life, it's always important and always useful. And, you know, there's lots of different resources one can follow for that online. Two websites that I found particularly useful. The one is a um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. Yeah. But, but so, so the Electronic Frontier Foundation in the U.S. Is, is a big digital rights agency, and they've got a really good uh, set of tutorials and guidelines called the Surveillance Self-Defense Guide, which is free online on their website. And I, I, I've often used that to figure out, okay, how do I implement encryption on my email? Or how do I, you know, encrypt my hard drive on my phone or whatever. Speaking as someone who has spent all of my time, you know, I encrypt my email or encrypt my data or whatever, but I'm still using a lot of Google Google products. So even though I might not be targeted for surveillance, I'm actually still kind of fueling the surveillance capitalism. And so I've started to get more interested this year in what I can do to make personal choices at a minimum of inconvenience to try to wean myself off of products that really run off of the collection of my data. And I've been using a website called restoreprivacy.com, which is a kind of non profit advisory site which recommends where you can shift to you know to different technological choices and apps and things like that and it's got a really good this amazing uh, list of different alternatives to to common google products whether it's email or calendar or search google docs these other things and so that was one I, I, that i kind of occasionally use as well but i started out by saying it's always useful to look at one's personal choices and you know there's lots of resources online for that but one of the things we must remember is that our personal choices is unfortunately not 
you know, it's never going to be enough. And even the most secure and technically savvy person in the world, if they are out in the world, they are probably compromising their personal information all the time. And it's not... And, and most of us don't have the time, you know, at all necessarily the skills to build uh, like our own little section of the internet, which is free from data collection. That if you're living in public yeah. life, you are subject to sort of surveillance capitalism. And we need to move beyond individual choices and move towards really making a collective security and collective privacy part of the world we want. And that means making collective choices about, for example, what kinds of businesses we're going to support, collective choices about what kinds of political programs we want to support in, you know, when we when we vote or participate in, in kind of political democracy. You know, what do you want to hear from your political party in terms of what policies they're going to support and, and are they implementing those policies? So when it comes to, in, in the South African sense, one of the things we really need to do is, is to build public pressure on the state and on parliament and on those political parties to actually move this situation we were talking about to end the delays on data protection in South Africa. So essentially to implement the Poppy Act, put an information regulator in place. And every time one of the companies that we use breaches our data in South Africa, the, the tagging and complaining about those companies is one thing. But actually, the people who also need to feel the fire are people who are charged with protecting our privacy at a kind of state or political level, yeah. and they're not doing it. And unfortunately, none of the political parties have been impressive on that one. I think it's it's important that every one of them starts to understand that there is also maybe that we if we start to show that there is political value in privacy. Maybe those they'll who take need, it seriously, yeah. And that there's a political cost to surveillance. And so we really need to, I think if we're talking about collective action we need to create a different set of values publicly that will lead to to, to a bigger change i like what you say in terms of uh, there's a political cost to surveillance i remember like about uh, about 10 years ago again when i was still a techie mm-hmm. and doing sys admin and network admin work and we used to work on juniper sort of intrusion detection and mm-hmm. idp boxes and put them in uh, cell to government etc I remember back then, I don't know if it's still being done now, one of the conditions of selling any security equipment or any networking equipment into a government organization was that the NSA would require a sort of a sample piece of that hardware before you sell it, and they'd sort of strip it apart and try and see if there are any bugs. And I mentioned this because now we've moved, 10 years later, we've moved to the age where smartphones are prevalent. And I don't mm. think, to my knowledge, maybe you know better, that uh, ministers and any government, especially mm. high-ranking ones, have their phones sort of secured by default so as, as part of some protocol to say that you can't just buy an iPhone phone at a store and you start using it you have to sort of take it to the nsa or somebody to put in some measures to make sure that your communications are secure yeah. maybe that's where we need to start with the with highlighting that the, the cost of, of of surveillance yeah, absolutely you know and and, and, and the, the thing is that i'm in the privileged position or relatively privileged position that for example this year i was able to move towards a, to, to start paying for email and it was the first time I've ever done that having, I can't remember how long it's been since I first had an email, but it was the 1990s. And I've always thought of email as a free service. And at some point I realized that, <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. a free service. And it's cost point, money. And, and, yeah, it yeah, costs and, money. And, and I realized that it was actually, no, I was paying for it, just not with money. I was paying for it by leaving. The data by giving being collected, yeah. And so I'm in the privileged position that I can pay a subscription now to an email service, but many people are not in that position. And, and it's one of the problems that we have in advocating for 
people to make different choices around data privacy is that there's almost, I feel sometimes quite a lot of victim blaming that goes on. So when there's a data breach, the first message that comes out often is people saying, well, all these people who've had the, you know, someone who's been hacked, they should have two-factor authentication or, you know, or they shouldn't use the same password twice or how can you use WhatsApp? You should be using Signal or blah, blah, blah. And yeah. the reality is that, that most of us don't have time to, you know, we're not built to worry about these things 24-7. And there are massive global economies that profit from creating our understanding or shaping our understanding of what they, you know, what our behavior should be, shaping our behavior. And yeah. so it's very difficult for people to know what choices they must make and to make choices that, that are actually meaningful at the same time. And if someone feels like they're always failing, one of my concerns, and this is what, I, you know, this is one of my main concerns this year is that when people feel like they're failing, it doesn't lead them to take new decisions it often leads them to withdrawing entirely and one of the th you know one of the big threats to advocating for kind of one of the big threats to our prospects for creating a, a better future for privacy is that if people are feeling dread all the time about the state of surveillance but don't know what to do because it feels so overwhelming or feeling like whatever choice they make will not have any impact. It means that no one's ever going to make any any different decisions. So we need to have, we, I think when we talk about people's individual behavior and choices and whatever, there has to be kind of empathy built into it. And the other, I mean, it's not just us as adults now. We, we've mm. moved, I think, I think the past 10 years, it's sort of accelerated the pace of this, even in South Africa. It's not just us as adults using the internet because we're not just using it on personal computers or laptops anymore. Mm. I mean, it's accelerated into tablets, it's accelerated into smartphones, and now kids are being affected mm. in terms mm. of privacy. But I think it's fair to say that many adults in South Africa barely understand the as much as they're concerned about it, barely understand sort of the intricacies of staying safe online. Mm, so mm. how can how can how can adults, especially parents, go about teaching their kids or making their kids alert and aware about staying safe online as far mm. as privacy goes? No, but you know, like so so obviously, yeah, I, I did write a children's book that was there to try to kind of spark conversations about data about the data industries with young people and with with grown-ups as well. But you know, it, it is the the reason I did it is basically to have a fun way of starting that conversation, but also realizing that it all I could do was spark the conversation because every adult needs to really negotiate that they need to make the choices that they feel are best for their family and for their kids. And you know, there's resources. So, for example, some parents have a no. There's no picture of my child on social media ever, and I insist that no one else will take pictures of them or post them either. Whereas, you know, that, that solution doesn't work for everyone. And for some parents, particularly if you, if you live in a really hectic, busy household, the only way to give yourself five minutes of freedom to go do that one task is to give baby the, the, you know, the, 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 the tablet. Lab, the, the tablet yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's just to give yourself those five minutes you need to go do that thing that you need your hands free to do, whatever it is, you know, like put out a fire on the stove or whatever. And so again, I think parents also are subject to a lot of shaming about, you know, the bad choices that they're making for their kids and, and, and other things. But the reality is that children are entering into the digital space at an early age. Often it's, you know, they can use a tablet before they have all their words. And I think grown-ups are often afraid of trying to have conversations with their kids about the risks of technology and about being aware of it. And so one of the things I was trying to do with Boris the Baby Bot was just to help 
really shape children's awareness of what the concept of data collection could be. If they were ready to have that conversation and curious about it, the grown-ups can take it forward. I think that when it really does come to every parent to set the rules of the household about how that technology gets worked, uh, gets used. It's really about having a conversation with your kid and coming up to, with some kind of agreement. But what's interesting is that kids don't necessarily, you know, kids don't necessarily have all the cognitive tools they need to be able to imagine digital risks. In fact, I would say even parents don't have those tools. And so it's really about just trying to shape people's awareness of, okay, when you're using this tablet or when you're using this app, what's happening to all of that information? Where's yeah. it going? Let's imagine that world where it goes. Okay, now let's, let's make it very specific. Let's imagine a person, an actual human being on the other end of that line. So rather than saying, are you worried about what the information is going on Facebook? Imagine every single post or message or whatever or bit of every single file goes across Mark Zuckerberg's desk. Let's make it quite personal. And if you're not comfortable with the CEO of Snapchat or TikTok or Facebook seeing that information, then it means you, you don't put it on the, on the server. Murray, as I said at the beginning, there's a quote by Laundromat and there's a big difference between privacy and secrecy. And I think as part of people who work in this industry, we need to, as you said, start making people more aware in their own sort of lifestyle, how privacy affects them. And as you mentioned in South Africa, that could be through identity theft and showing them the dangers of identity theft, which is something they they can relate to quite well. Uh, thank you for your time. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for, for the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Defomohapi Show, which is broadcast by iAfrican Radio. To be notified of future episodes of this podcast and any other shows from iAfrican Radio, please visit radio.iafrican.com. That is radio.iafrican.com and subscribe. You can catch future episodes on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to leave us a review and rating of the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tefomohapi, which is T-E-F-O-M-O-H-A-P-I. And also don't forget to follow iAfrican2 on Twitter at I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N. Hot.